I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. An average of 20 Canadians are dying each day from opioid poisonings. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. After all this time, the questions burn hot. Is enough being done? Why are people dying at an accelerating rate? Our question, have you or your family been affected by the toxic drug crisis? What can we do to reduce the number of deaths in Canada? I've been in EMS for 20 years now, and I've never seen anything like this. You know, when I first started, the use of naloxone was, it was, it was odd, and, and now it's routine day to day. My daughter Renee was 34 years old, and she was poisoned, killed. Uh, she was, was, had fentanyl in something, and it just struck her dead. In my neighborhood, there's police and ambulance responding, sirens going around the clock. It's, it's a tragedy. There was a time when drug addiction was hidden, stigma pushing users into the shadows. But a drug supply poisoned by substances like fentanyl is killing so many Canadians, we're learning how addiction reaches into every community in the country. How it compels people to literally risk their lives over and over again. As we heard, about 20 Canadians are dying every day, a staggering number. Perhaps that tragedy has touched your life. Our question, have you or your family been affected by the toxic drug crisis? What can we do to reduce the number of drug deaths in Canada? In the last half hour, and ask me anything on food safety in your kitchen. An E. coli outbreak in Calgary has infected more than 300 people. E. coli is one of the most common causes of food poisoning, but it's not the most common. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from September 17th, 2023. And let's start the show with someone who has direct experience with today's topic. Uh, my first guest survived 20 years of opioid addiction. Kyle Arnold used several drugs, including fentanyl, when he lived in British Columbia. Today, he's an outreach worker in Thunder Bay with an organization called PACE. He works with people who are homeless and those trying to recover from drug addiction. Hi, Kyle. Hi there. Let's start with your story. How how did you first start using drugs, including fentanyl? Um, For me, it was, uh, you know, I had a pretty normal childhood and then at a When I came into my teenage years, um, I went through some severe trauma. um, And once that trauma started, uh, I had another event of trauma and trauma again. um, And it took me down a road where I felt like the only way I could not feel anything was to uh, use substances. You said you were addicted to drugs for nearly 20 years. That's a long time. Uh, A lot of things happened in your life. But uh, what do you remember about that period of your life? The hopelessness. Um, I remember hiding it uh, from people because I didn't want people to, you know, just look at me as some drug addict. Um, I remember not knowing if you were going to wake up the next day, not knowing, you know, where you were going to get your food from. Of course, there was good times 
in my eyes at that time where everything came easy, but it was always overshadowed by more trauma and more pain. We're here live with Kyle Arnold. He's recovered from an addiction to opioids. He now works as an outreach worker. And our question on cross-country checkup today, have you or your family been affected by the toxic drug crisis? What can we do to reduce the number of drug deaths in Canada? And our number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us your comment. That number is 226-758-8924. Kyle, so so you're trapped in this opioid dependence for a long time. What was what was the turning point for you? You know, I had gone, I spent 20 years there and like I was in and out of jails. I was at numerous rock bottoms. I had tried treatment centers. I had tried in recovery homes. And eventually I ended up in Thunder Bay, Ontario on the streets. And, you know, one day... I had been trying to get clean and somebody overdosed in front of me, um, which I had seen so many times. But the difference of the story was when they were carted away on a stretcher, I picked up that dirty needle and I did it because I needed something to, I was, I was dope sick. And for me, that was my absolute rock bottom when I could reach down on the road and pick up a needle that somebody had just used to inject that had just sent them to the hospital. And I had no clue you know, what was in that needle. So that had such a jarring impact on you, but, you know, it's one thing to to have that rock bottom moment and have that realization. It's another thing to take the next step towards recovery. What was the sort of critical next moment? Um, it was really interesting. Um, I met a guy um, that was covered in tattoos like me. I was sitting at a McDonald's. And uh, he was looking really healthy, and I was about 130 pounds strung out. And I said, how'd you do it? Because I could tell right away, you know, like he was, you know, and he said to me, he goes, well, I went to a recovery home here in Thunder Bay. And I said, really? And I talked to him for like an hour about what he was doing to change his life. And I ended up applying for that recovery home. And for some grace, I got into that recovery home only a few weeks later. And for those few weeks, I was supported at the Salvation Army by staff members who really took the time to give me that compassion and care I needed. And there was a staff member there that had lived experience himself, and he was in recovery. And he was able to set me up with meetings, and I started going to meetings. And then that bed came up at that treatment home, and I attended it. You know, I spent nine and a half months in that treatment home. And then they have a second stage facility. I spent another 18 months there. As you know, Kyle, we're asking our listeners and viewers how we can reduce the number of deaths in Canada. And and I want to ask you about something that is being proposed in New Brunswick. The public safety minister there wants to table legislation that would give police officers the power to order someone to undergo drug rehabilitation in, quote, the most extreme cases. Do you think legislation like that would have helped you get clean sooner? Numerous times. I was released out of jail if I went to treatment and it never worked for me because I wasn't ready. I, I strongly believe that you can't force someone to treatment. You can support them through um, these tough times, but you cannot force them to go to a treatment center because they don't, they have to want it. You know, for myself, 
in recovery, I had to want this more than anything else in my life. Based on your life experience, Kyle, and and the experience of, of clients who you currently work with, let me ask you part of our show question. What do you think we should be doing in Canada or, or maybe, you know, one key thing we should be doing in Canada to try to reduce the number of, of toxic drug deaths we're seeing right now? Treatment beds, treatment beds, treatment beds. Um, it's really interesting. I, I had this talk with someone about if they started mandating treatment, if they had that power and what really bothers us is right now if I apply for treatment for a client it takes them three to six months to get a bed can you imagine the backlog if people are getting court ordered or police ordered to go to those treatments then all the people that want to go will be put on the back burner and they would wait even longer so I think we need more treatment beds but there's so many different ways to combat this and I think we need to combine all of the ideas you know safer supply uh, the safe injection sites, they have a path in this recovery journey too because they allow us to keep people alive long enough that they can make it to treatment. It is so good talking to you. Uh, great hearing your story. And I want to thank you very much for kicking off our program here on this important topic. Kyle, thank you very much. Thank you. Kyle Arnold has experience with drug addiction and he'll be five years clean this Boxing Day. He's also an outreach worker with people advocating for change through empowerment, PACE, in Thunder Bay. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Elaine Hishka. She's a professor at the University of Alberta and Canada's research chair in health systems innovation. If your job relates to addiction treatment or you've been directly affected by a fentanyl-related poisoning, give us a call. Our question, have you or your family been affected by the toxic drug crisis? What can be done to reduce the number of drug deaths in Canada? Our number is 1-888-416-8333, or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. All right. Uh, Alberta is uh, pursuing a new proposal in response to this toxic drug crisis. The province wants to develop what they call compassionate intervention legislation. The act would give a family member or guardian the ability to get a special court order to refer drug users to involuntary treatment. And Dan Williams is Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, and he joins us now live from Edmonton. Hello, Minister. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and thank you very much for uh, for connecting with us live here on Cross Country Checkup. We heard, and I'm sure you did as well, from Kyle, a recovering uh, drug addict in Thunder Bay. He does not believe, as you heard, that it would be the right step to force drug users uh, into treatment. Why do you believe that a family member or guardian should uh, have that power? Well, I'll give you some context on the legislation that's being proposed. Uh, in the last election, uh, our party campaigned on it in my mandate letter. Uh, as I became a minister, it was outlined to me to bring forward legislation around compassionate intervention. So that means potentially having a family member or a law enforcement officer or maybe a healthcare professional be able to petition a, a specially trained court or court body that could consider with appropriate rigor and oversight the civil liberties, um, the possibility of treatment. And if that individual uh, who is suffering from addiction uh, and is using drugs is a danger or harm to themselves or others, then there would be the possibility to have that court give a treatment order. Uh, and the treatment order could last up to one year. 
Uh, and we believe that this is the compassionate response to a society uh, when we see individuals um, disproportionately Indigenous, um, many of them living uh, with addiction, who are intermittently homeless, living rough in the streets or in the bush, unfortunately, in what we all know are very, very cold winters, um, often you know, mixing all sorts of very dangerous drugs, no matter where they're acquired from, and uh, risking their life every time they seek to fulfill that high that they're compelled to do because of the nature yeah. of the addiction. And so we want to say that the compassionate thing to do in a society is not to leave that mother or that sister on the street, but instead, if all other options um, have been run out, then what we need to do is intervene um, and be able to get them the care and treatment and love that they deserve, being a citizen of our country and a member of our society. So here's the key point, though. Kyle is not the only person who I've heard who said that forcing somebody into treatment involuntarily um, is not going to work if they're not ready to accept that treatment. In Kyle's case, he got clean when he was in prison numerous times and came out and started using again. What what medical evidence do you and does your government have to suggest otherwise that this approach will actually keep people off drugs in the long term? Well, of course, we have our uh, recovery expert advisory panel, which is a panel of experts across North America and the world. Um, the chair of which is Keith Humphreys, who is the um, chair of um, the department at Stanford around addiction medicine, uh, former advisor to the White House, both Obama and Bush. Uh, and is seen to be probably the world expert on addiction medicine and the North American opioid crisis. And so he chairs that along with a number of other Canadian, American, UK, international experts, um, both um, who have lived experience, both who are medical professionals, those who are in treatment spaces, those in academia, uh, who are advising us. And and we've crafted the Alberta model around this. And I, I loved what Kyle had to say that we need to get treatment spaces. Alberta is taking very seriously, I'd say at least half a billion dollars in capital invested on 11 different recovery communities, which are not too different from what I heard Kyle describe. These are 75 bed facilities that can stay up to one year, not these short stays, but long stays for people who have low recovery capital where all the other resources they have and family resources and friends and personal resources they have have been spent, have been spent and so, we have invested massively in this. We have a first of 11 online now. These are going to make a big difference. And we've gotten our wait times down a lot. We've went from somewhere around 25,000 different um, beds, uh, pardon me, treatment spaces in a year to now 29,000 plus in Alberta. We've reduced every barrier possible to recovery and treatment. It's huge. We have lots of evidence to show that recovery works, first of all. Um, but interventions, Ian, come in all different shapes and sizes. And the truth is, is that sometimes it could be a, a medical emergency because of your addiction and use, whether it's the drug itself or something related to it. It could be an interaction with the criminal justice system. Uh, it could be a family member. And every one of these, in some ways, is taking an, a person suffering from addiction and saying, this isn't helping you. This mm -hmm. isn't going to work. And we hear this in all sorts of different stories and cases. And this is one tool in a toolbox that Alberta knows as this crisis is getting worse and worse and worse. 
because it's an addiction crisis. Sorry to jump in there. We're live with Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Dan Williams. He is in Edmonton and he's talking to us about uh, the Alberta model, which the Federal Conservative Party, for example, at its convention last week, voted to adopt elements of that in their own policy. But uh, Minister Williams, you know, we talked about Kyle, the uh, recovering addict who was just on the program, and what he says is in line with what I've heard from uh, academic experts who I've spoken to who say it's not either or, that yes, absolutely, we need more room in uh, recovery and, well, particularly rehabilitation clinics, but we also need to deal with the immediate sort of short-term problem. So you know this, that there are people in in provinces like British Columbia who also talk about the importance of supervised consumption sites and a safer supply of drugs so that today, somebody who's just a few blocks away from me uh, in the downtown east side, rather than taking drugs that could be poisoned, can get drugs that aren't poisoned and, and live to see another day. What about including that in Alberta's approach? Alberta's model has lots of tools in our toolkit, as I mentioned. We pioneered the virtual opioid dependency program. So we are the first jurisdiction to have same-day treatment for addiction drugs such as methadone or suboxone or supplicate. There is no wait time um, and it's immediate response to get it. That's the kind of thing that Alberta is not putting ideology in front of how we're moving forward on this. But we need to make a very, very sharp contrast between common sense approach Alberta's taking and the radical activist approach of safe supply. I just but want to you, but you see what that, safe that, supply that's, is. But let me just jump in. I mean, that sounds ideological. Just just your language there no, sounds like you're all. making a, a I'll, ideological I'll value judgment. I'll put it to your listeners and ask, so hydromorphone is the drug that the federal government in collaboration with the, the BC government are dispensing near you, it seems, here in Vancouver, mm-hmm. in the lower mainland, 50,000 tablets of 8 milligram hydromorphone daily. Um, 50,000, that is, every one of those is four or five times more powerful than heroin. That is not going to solve the addiction opioid crisis. It will fuel it. It will create more addicts. It will have more diversion. There will be more pain and suffering and misery. We know this, and we know it clearly. We so, so is there, I, I, just, I, I, if I could finish this Of thought, course you can, of course we, you can. We, we know that addiction ends in one of two routes, unfortunately. It either ends on one side, pain, misery, and death, given enough time, or it ends in a recovery center. Alberta is putting as many resources towards helping people in recovery as possible, and we will not be party to a system that doles out the same kind of agony and pain that a drug dealer does. Because hydromorphone, you can overdose on and die. And we've seen coroner's reports, and in BC as well, we see people dying from hydromorphone every single year, youth included. And some of the diversion we saw in reporting, uh, national reporting out of the National Post just a few months ago, that there's mass diversion happening of those 50,000 pills into our communities. And it's also why we see the BC government just this week, along with the federal government, taking a step back from their attempted decriminalization. They have to understand that this is this is going to damage people if we don't try and get people into recovery. We don't have the resources as a society to treat them in recovery. Yeah, there's so many issues here, and I do appreciate that you're speaking to us live, and I apologize for uh, jumping in there. But And we can't deal with, with all of the issues. I, I do want to note that uh, BC's chief coroner, Lisa Lapointe, says that there isn't evidence here of, of the so-called safe supply being diverted. I mean, there's so much I can ask you. Let me just ask you this. You suggested that having a safe supply of drugs 
and it being diverted would lead to a greater number of overdoses. Is there hard evidence of that? There's lots of evidence of that. Uh, and we hear it um, testimony um, regularly from people who say um, high school students, young people who say that they are consuming uh, Dilaudid. They're known as Dillies on the street. Dilaudid is the name of the, of the, of the drug um, produced by Purdue Pharmaceutical. Um, in so many ways, Ian, it's so sad. This opioid crisis we talk about, I think you unfairly characterize this as a toxic drug crisis when it's just an addiction to opioid crisis. And what started this in the worst possible way was OxyContin coming into our streets en masse um, through prescriptions. And now we're seeing a replay of almost the exact same thing with a drug more powerful, hydromorphone, is more powerful than OxyContin, quite a lot more powerful by a factor of many times. And it's being dispensed very carefree into our communities. And unfortunately, we hear all sorts of testimony and evidence of people telling us that they are consuming from people who exchange their um, their prescribed high-power pharmaceutical-grade hydromorphone from so-called safer supply for cash, and they go and buy fentanyl or something else instead, and those drugs instead end up in someone else's body. And yeah. sometimes it can end up in overdose, and that is a tragedy. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to, to track down the, the data on that. I, you know, language really matters to me. And I, I should say on describing this as uh, toxic drugs or drug poisonings, the way it's been described to me is that there are people who are addicted to drugs, not a healthy lifestyle, um, but, but are able to stay alive. But then when fentanyl uh, is involved and when it ends up... Uh, I guess, contaminating the drug supply, it leads to uh, deaths uh, in a situation where if it wasn't there, they wouldn't have died. So that's why we talk about uh, I think that's a fair consideration. I would just um, highlight that that would be a disservice to all those who die from hydromorphone, who die from oxycotton, who die from anything other than fentanyl, who are addicted in in this endless um, agony of marijuana or alcohol addiction, which are very real, or process addictions. Uh, I think the addiction is what we need to get to the root cause of. We need to look at the pain that causes that. And that's why we have this social uh, social psychotherapy model in Alberta in our recovery centers. So we look at the entire individual to treat the addiction. Uh, if we just look at the drug, I was at recovery day in Newestminster just, I think, last week in your beautiful province. And um, the founder of the recovery day got up there. He's, um, I think he's 40 some years now sober. And he said, not doing drugs is not the same thing as being in recovery. For him, being in recovery is being a good dad. And simply not doing the, the opioid that he was doing previously would not have brought him there. We need to look at this more holistically. And I think just saying that it's a toxic drug crisis eliminates the pain and suffering of so many people from this conversation who are not at risk of a fentanyl overdose, but are at risk of overdose of other opioids or potentially death um, and agony and pain from these other drugs. Okay. Well, thanks again for uh, taking the time with us. 12 minutes this interview went, which is long for us, but uh, I want to hear hear different perspectives and different uh, voices here. And uh, we've heard a lot about the Alberta model, and you've certainly articulated it very well. So thank you very much. Very, very proud to be on Cross Country Checkup. Listen to it as a kid and keep up the great work, Ian. Love what you're doing having this national conversation. All right. Thank you so much. That's Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Dan Williams. And we reached him in Edmonton.
New Brunswick's also drafting legislation on so-called compassionate intervention, and we did invite New Brunswick's public safety minister, Chris Austin, on the program, but he was unavailable. We also asked Minister Austin's office what evidence they have uh, sort of supporting the policy that they want to implement, and we did not get a response to that. So so we heard earlier from the minister just a few minutes ago um, that there are experts, he says, including someone he describes at Stanford, presumably University in California, as uh, the leading expert or a leading expert on dealing with addiction. Um, let's speak to another expert who actually also happens to be in Alberta, Lane Heschke, is an associate professor and the Canada a research chair in health systems innovation at the University of Alberta School of Public Health. She also joins us from Edmonton. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, speaking with us. So I, I think you heard the minister, and I know you've heard the minister in the past uh, speaking on this topic. Uh, we, we discussed a lot in that long interview, but I just wonder if there's anything kind of top of mind as you heard him that you'd like to comment on. Um, I think there's a lot to dig into in that interview, but um, first I just want to acknowledge that I'm joining you here from Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. Um, And on this territory, the uh, Treaty 6 chiefs have declared a public health emergency uh, regarding drug poisoning deaths. In Alberta, we've seen First Nations life expectancy decline by seven years since 2015. And that to me is extremely unacceptable and it's something we need to address immediately. And I'll say one thing, the chiefs are not calling for uh, added course treatment and incarceration of their people. What they're calling for is a comprehensive approach that provides people with evidence-based forms of care, as well as harm reduction, including more supervised consumption services, and also um, ensuring that people have income, they have housing, and they're able to um, achieve recovery and then be supported in that recovery. And so I would really like to see a lot more investment in Alberta and also on the part of the federal government to address this emergency in our province. Drug poisoning deaths have never, they've been never been very as bad as they are now. Um, we are just watching uh, increase over the summer, a devastating increase in the number of ambulance calls um, in Edmonton. It was sirens all summer long. And um, we know that ambulance call data corresponds quite closely with mortality data. So I am expecting to see quite devastating numbers um, once they are released by the province. And so we need immediate action and everything that has been done to date in the province has not been enough to address this crisis. So um, I'm glad to hear the minister talking about potential solutions, but I think uh, fundamentally, um, some of the things that are being proposed here will not be effective and will divert attention away from things that actually do work to save lives. Okay, so one of the things, one of the reasons why we connected with you is your academic and research background and uh, and allowing us to, to talk about this on an, uh, on the basis of evidence as opposed to ideology. So let's let's address the two things you just mentioned. What is it about the so-called Alberta model that you think there is not the evidence that uh, it will work? Okay, so I think I want to be very clear that I support investment in residential treatment programs. And I was glad to see that the provincial government over the last several years has done a lot to remove barriers in accessing residential treatment. And that's really important because those programs are particularly helpful for people who are struggling with alcohol use or people that may be struggling with uh, stimulant use like methamphetamine or cocaine. The evidence, though, in terms of residential treatment for uh, opioid use disorder, which is 
um, obviously a big issue and uh, related to the drug poisoning crisis, is that residential treatment is not particularly effective. So um, while some people do certainly achieve recovery uh, when they attend residential treatment, the evidence and shows that the preponderance of people that go to those programs really um, are not going to do particularly well and that the key is to invest in access to medication treatment. So that's opioid agonist treatment, which is very technical, but it basically means medications like buprenorphine or methadone, um, injectable formulations as well, have very high evidence to support their um, effectiveness in cutting the death rate and supporting people in recovery. So that really has to be the frontline response to opioid use disorder or people that um, are struggling with opioid use and are at risk of dying from drug poisoning. Uh, Alberta has done some to ex expand access and we do have a virtual program now, but our population level coverage for these medications is still quite low. So I think um, I would like to see that expanded further uh, as part of the Alberta model. Now, I think my main concern with the Alberta model, and again, is a number of things, is that we really are primarily focused now on one narrow form of treatment, residential treatment, which is abstinence-based. And again, it's not um, going to necessarily be sufficient for reducing the death rate. And at, at and it's also worth recognizing that there is pretty good evidence now showing that when people attend these programs, especially if they're shorter stay, uh, their risk of relapse is quite high from opioid, or especially if they're using opioids. And when you relapse after a period of abstinence, you're at a very high risk of dying because your tolerance has gone down and you return to use. And um, it's very likely that you could overdose. And so not only is funneling as many people as possible into these programs um, a very narrow approach, but it's also potentially harmful for people that are using opioids in particular. This is such a complicated issue, and there's so many threads to uh, to pull on here. Um, I know you're going to be with us over the next uh, half hour or so, so I, I really want to get to calls. I went longer with the minister than I planned to, so um, let me come back to you in, in a few <laughs> minutes, and uh, you can actually tell me when I come back to you where you want to pick up this conversation. And it may be based on some of the things we hear from calls, or it may be picking up on some of the things that the minister said, but, uh, but stand by. We will come back to you. Elaine Heshka is an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in Health Systems Innovation at the University of Alberta's School of Public Health. Uh, you can give us a call, and we already have some callers uh, waiting to speak. Our number is 1-888-416-8333, or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Our question, have you or your family been affected by the toxic drug crisis? What can we do to reduce the number of drug deaths in Canada? All right, let's go to uh, Christina Notting, who is in Surrey, British Columbia, not far from where I'm sitting right now in our Vancouver studio of CBC. Uh, Christina, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, we just heard from the Alberta Minister uh, on the idea, uh, the concept, the support for involuntary treatment. Um, you've dealt with this issue in your own family. How do you feel about uh, the about involuntary treatment as an option? Well, I, I'm I'm just going to say that um, I just want to provide listeners with a little bit of background in that. Uh, my son has had two fentanyl-related um, poisonings this year. The last one was July 30th, and uh, he had what's called a polysubstance overdose. So that's he had five different illicit substances, including fentanyl, in his body. He nearly died. Um, when he arrived at... He, he was at our home when this happened. Um, I had to do uh, chest compressions on him. Um, until Surrey Fire arrived, and I just want to express my gratitude to Surrey Fire uh, for their quick response, and they are my heroes 
and saving my son's life twice this year. So when my son got to Surrey Memorial Hospital, he could not support his own airway, and uh, he was um, basically unaware, unconscious for um, the first 20 hours of his 23-hour stay there. They discharged him as soon as he was aware and awake, um, and uh, he came home. And because this was not my first time dealing with this, I went to Surrey Provincial Court to get what's called a Form 10 under the Mental Health Act to have my son, because the, the 14 hours prior to my son's poisoning, he had had three police contacts and one ambulance and fire contacts. Actually, the fire chief who attended his um, resuscitation uh, could not believe he was dealing with the same kid he'd seen at 4 a.m., it's a very complex issue. It's a long story, but um, uh, I went and got the Form 10. The police came and apprehended my son as soon as he got home from the hospital and took him back. Um, I came this time, and I was the, the hospital staff was quite annoyed with me for getting the Form 10. They told me the procedure would be that he would need to be evaluated by a second different psychiatrist, and that person would not be on until 5 p.m., I said that was fine, take all day, and uh, within 90 minutes, they released my son again without following their own procedures. So what I can say, what I've learned from this, is that I really feel that if, if somebody goes into a hospital from a massive overdose, 23 hours is, in my view, a medically negligent period of time in which to discharge someone. I in terms of involuntary treatment, all I want to comment on is that I feel that people who are admitted because of an overdose should be kept longer than 23 hours, maybe up to 72 hours, so that they have time to go through withdrawal in a, in a safe and supportive environment. So they're not getting out and after 23 hours and being given a sheet of paper with resources to call, and all they want to do is use again so they can stop feeling crummy and and because withdrawal is very painful uh, it's a very addiction to opioids in particular is very physical and so if these people could have the peer support and the one-on-one possibly and be allowed to withdraw and hopefully have that moment of clarity within 72 hours or so or whatever period of time we could agree on in which we could hold a person after an overdose maybe they could get that moment of clarity where they could make that decision for themselves. But I just think releasing them after 23 hours doesn't provide them that space in which to withdraw safely and have support. And then Mm -hmm. also, you know, to get a Form 10, I had to go before a provincial court judge who listened to me disclose my son's uh, addiction and mental health history to him. He decided that the Form 10 was warranted. The police came and got my son, took him back to Surrey Memorial, Mm -hmm. and Surrey Memorial did not follow their own protocol as described to me. So if a provincial court judge decision can be overturned by the nurse in a healthcare system because they don't have time for this or a psychiatrist doesn't have time for this today. Mm-hmm. What, what are what are we doing? We have a failure yep. in our healthcare system, failure in policing, failure in legislation. And I honestly think if Canadians looked at the data, they would see in 1993, the BC coroner um, declared that the 330 drug-related deaths we had that year were too high 
1993, we had 330 drug-related deaths in this province. 30 years later, we are on track. We've had 1,455 deaths in the first seven months of this year alone. Mm -hmm. If that trend keeps up, we are going to have 2,500 people die from toxic drug supply in this province this year alone. And that is a 660% increase over 30 years. So I want to know why has why haven't we had a royal commission or an inquiry into what is wrong here and how our systems are not working together and how these systems are failing our young people again and our anyone again and again. And I want to take that moment to divert our attention away from the predictable places like the downtown east side to our homes in suburbs where we are losing our sons and daughters we're Christina, it's, our children. It, it's such a heartbreaking story, and it's yeah. not a unique story. And, uh, you know, I, I can't, I should say, first of all, I'm in no position to evaluate the interaction you had with the Surrey Hospital. Um, and so uh, I, I'm not going to question what you said, but I should say I'm not able to to, uh, to fact check it at this, at this moment. Um, you know, there's so many excellent points there. Uh, one of the things I should say is that in, Van- in British Columbia, the chief coroner has pointed out that uh, don't think about the downtown east side as the image of many of these uh, toxic drug deaths, because as you say, they're happening all around the province, often individuals who are by themselves, right? So that when they end up uh, going down, there's nobody uh, to to call the police or fire or, or give them help. Um, I've got other callers I want to get to, Christina. Your, your answer was so compelling, but I do want to ask you this. Um, if there was a mechanism in place to have kept your son in hospital, perhaps against his will, I mean, who knows, but for, let's say, 72 hours, what do you think would have been the outcome, would be the outcome of that? Well, I'm just hoping that he would have had that wraparound support for 72 hours to maybe help him. The thing was, my son, when I described to him what had happened, because he had no clue um, Mm -hmm. when he woke up and was discharged what had happened to him, they had to tell him why he was there. And I told him what had happened. And my son said, the first thing he said to me was, I think I was trying to kill myself. And so I feel that, you know, these people who use drugs aren't just using, they are in some state of mental slash health crisis um, and they need that wraparound support they need that peer support and so maybe he would have that moment of clarity to realize wow you know this is this is what I need to be doing if I want to stay alive Mm -hmm. and and may I I ask you oh sorry go ahead I just think 23 hours is ridiculous Um, and may I ask you this how's your son doing uh, now We're in a bit of a quiet period right now, which is also kind of scary in its own way. And that's another point I want to make is that when you are a parent or a person who has a loved one with this illness, this disorder, you, it, it's a, it takes a toll on you too. We're not just losing people to the toxic drug crisis because they're dying. We're losing people. We're losing families who are living in grief, who are living with anxiety, who are depressed, who feel that everyday life is unpredictable and difficult for them because they just are waiting for that other shoe to drop. And is the help going to be there that time when it happens? Christina, a a difficult story, a a difficult situation. And uh, I I appreciate you calling us to, to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. You have a great day. 
Have you or your family been affected by the toxic drug crisis? What can we do to reduce the number of drug deaths in Canada? We are live here on Cross Country Checkup on CBC Radio and CBC News Network. And we can hear from you if you give us a call at 1-888-416-8333. Julie Thrasher is calling us from Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Hi, Julie. Good afternoon. So you have been, your family has been touched by, uh, by the toxic drug crisis. Tell me about that. It's not just my family, too, because uh, we are a small territory. Mm-hmm. The majority of our population is in Yellowknife. So we have a lot of people who have family and friends who come to Yellowknife or whatever it is for work or for health reasons or provision or whatever. But the drug addiction and problems are so rampant here that uh, no one here is immune to it. And I had a family member, my brother, as a matter of fact, who was struggling with uh, alcoholism and ended up getting into drugs Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the years. And he tried going south for treatment. It was successful at one time. He came back, but he went again. And he got into heavier drugs. And at that time, COVID money was being rolled out and... I knew then and there that we weren't going to see him again. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. And it wasn't just with him. It was with many other people who were struggling with drug addiction that there was money so fast and readily available that, that it was just, I don't know how to explain it because I can't imagine what the service providers were going through. And then with this evacuation that was going on here in um South North Slave uh, area mm-hmm. of uh, Yellow, the um, There was people lost to addictions in Alberta during that uh, during a time that uh, people were evacuated. So it's uh, hard. And when you bring up the subject of involuntary treatment, it's just the same as, um, in my opinion, for some people. I guess you can't force a person to go to counseling, but you can support them to that journey. But at the same time. We see too many children suffering unnecessarily, elders being abused, and unborn children being exposed to the drugs. So then that brings the point to at what point do we put this involuntary treatment in? And then it comes down to will you save this person's life? Will you save that person's life or this unborn child? So at the same time, harsher penalties for drug dealers so that the the exposure is at least slowed down to a bit so that treatment centers can take place. And Mm -hmm. we don't have a treatment center here in the Northwest Territories. The government of the Northwest Territories refuses to build one here. They used to access the pound makers in Edmonton, and they cut that that, uh, treatment there off. And pound makers, in in their opinion... The government of the Northwest Territories is not um, knowledgeable enough to understand what is needed. And that mm-hmm. I believe that 100%. Julie Thrasher is calling us from Yellowknife, uh, Northwest Territories, and a lot of wisdom, Julie, in what you're saying. I, I know, you know, and I'll say this to all the people who are listening and who, who will be calling, um, this is so complicated. And so when I ask about, you know, one recommendation, uh, it's tough. Maybe it's not even fair because there's so many things that need to be done. But but I am going to ask you this, Julie, because I do want to get to other callers. If if governments are listening, 
and you could say to them, particularly from the context of living in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, one thing you'd like to see change that you think could have an impact on reducing drug deaths in your territory. Julie, what would it be? A treatment center. Mm-hmm. A holistic Aboriginal treatment center run by the people of the Northwest Territories. You can't put a price on a person's life. Julie, thank you very much for calling. You're welcome, Ian. Thank you for uh, having me in your show there. Yeah, I really appreciate your call. Let's go to uh, Mitch, a caller who uh, contacted us through uh, AirCheck. Uh, hi, Mitch. Hi there. I, I know we don't want to use your full name because of the potential impact uh, in your uh, line of work, but what what can you tell us about what you do and what you're seeing? Well, essentially, um, <clears throat> I'm from a small town in Saskatchewan, or a small city. Um, grew up, born and raised, didn't really have a homeless problem at all. Uh, I became a firefighter and I moved to Alberta and got thrown kind of right downtown in uh, one of the capital cities there, or the capital city, <laughs> Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, it was just like something out of a movie, something I didn't even really know actually existed was this homelessness problem, this drug problem. And, um, and then I was downtown for about three and a half years and all I, all I saw was it get worse. And I didn't even think it could get worse, but with the promotion of safe injection sites, Narcan kits and all of that, I just, I saw it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And we'd be going to reviving people multiple times a day. And, uh, I just started thinking, well, there's gotta be a better, better solution. Mm-hmm. And um, today was the first time in the past, say, three years that I've actually heard kind of what I was thinking uh, vocalized and with what they're promoting in New Brunswick. So the idea of, of forcing people into treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, but Mitch, you've also heard people, I, I, I don't know if you've heard it on the show, but I'm sure you've heard it yeah. uh, generally, um, people saying that, that, that if someone who is addicted to drugs is not ready yeah. to, to stop taking drugs, forced yeah. treatment is not going to work. What do you say to that? Well, what I say to that is because we live in, in our society right now is uh, almost promotes it. And because we enable it so much, they come out of these treatment centers and they can just go right downtown to a safe injection site and just access this all very easily. Mm-hmm. They can go down, they can get free Narcan kits. There's no consequence anymore. So, you know, what, what we need to do is stop enabling it. And then maybe they wouldn't feel so, like they can just get back to it so easily. Yeah. I mean, Narcan, for people who aren't uh, familiar with it, is uh, a drug that uh, can, I guess it blocks receptors uh, that, uh, it's an amazing thing to watch Narcan be administered to somebody who has Mm -hmm. had an overdose because it, 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 it's almost like it brings them back to life. And, uh, and, and then supervised injection or consumption sites are, are designed to, um, let people who are addicted to drugs use those drugs and uh, and if they have an overdose there or they're a poisoning there, they can be revived. I, I'm pretty sure that in, in Vancouver, for example, or British Columbia, no one has died um, at a supervised uh, consumption site. So if, if, if those things are in place to keep people alive, um, what is your objection to them? 
So because it, it just enables the problem. For instance, like I said, they, they feel like there's no consequence to mm. it anymore. And that's why we would revive the same person over and over what, uh, in the what, same night, same, but, same week. Yeah. And I have a story for you. Okay. Like with these safe injection sites, we went in there as a crew reviving someone, giving them life-saving like CPR, bagging and all that stuff. And like getting bumped into by other people um, and nurses injecting illegal substances into someone's vein. The nurses actually help them inject into their vein. And if you ask me, I, I think that sounds more like they're doing them harm than good. Mm-hmm. I, and those same nurses could yeah. be used to be injecting um, detox medication. Like it would, if the government's paying them already yeah. and has these centers already, pay these nurses to be injecting them with, you know, methadone or whatever to, to wean them off. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying a forced detox and it's out of love. It, it would just be like, the way I thought about it is if I had a family member that was killing themselves daily through drug use, I would want to lock them up and, and help them get through a detox. Yeah. And then once they're, once they've beat that, that addiction or that urge to go out, then we can start talking about the next steps. I'm not talking about just throwing them in jail for a week. I'm talking about using these centers to, it sounds rough, forcibly detox mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think it's the most loving thing we could do yeah. for our community because that's what I would want to do to my family member. So Mitch, I appreciate that you've called in. And I also appreciate hearing your perspective because the frustration in your voice is palpable. And you are a, a first responder who has uh, seen this issue play out on the streets of, of Edmonton over and over again. So thank you for that. Thanks for calling in. Um, and Thanks I wanna, for having me. Now, we have uh, Elaine Heshko with us, who is... Uh, an expert in this area, and let's bring her back into the conversation. And uh, Elaine, you, you you hear that frustration as well, and and he's working in the city that you live and work in as well. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll just put that to you. Um, and, and just to let you know, Elaine, I, I may have to interrupt you just at the top of the hour, but don't go far away because I'll continue the conversation after we <laughs> say goodbye to our television audience. But so here's what we we heard, that the firefighters even, you know, go into a supervised consumption site. They use Narcan to revive somebody. They bag them. They tr- bring them back essentially to life. And right next to him is a nurse, he says, who's, I guess, he, this is what he said, uh, administering a, a drug to somebody who's there. I didn't know that's how that works at that center. But but anyway, um, and why not force that person into some sort of uh, rehab as opposed to administering um, drugs. What would you say to to Mitch in that circumstance? Yeah, first I'd like to acknowledge I share Mitch's frustration. I think it has been very difficult to be living in Alberta over the last several years and see so many people uh, dying from drug poisoning and seeing our EMS calls just escalate astronomically. But I want to correct a few things that I heard before we go further. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I actually have been very closely monitoring the statistics around the use of supervised consumption sites in our city. And I can tell you that when um, the supervised consumption services opened in 2018, uh, it was associated with a corresponding reduction in drug poisoning deaths. And now we don't have hard data, you know, to uh, rule out other factors. But certainly um, there were many reports uh, from police, uh, as well as looking at just the drug poisoning statistics in neighborhoods, that um, drug poisonings were declining and uh, we were seeing less discarded needles on the streets uh, and potentially less EMS calls as well. 
Um, what has changed in the last several years since about 2021 uh, is that we've actually lost a lot of capacity for supervised exception services. Um, we have had the busiest site in the city closed down by the provincial government, and um, we have yet to see the volume of visits that we were having prior to the pandemic uh, return in Edmonton. So there's still uh far lower coverage for those sites than we used to have. Um, and I think that's probably why Mitch is seeing more EMS calls, especially in the downtown area, because people actually don't have that support. The other thing I just want to highlight is I think naloxone is a core intervention, and I would um, really strongly oppose any move to limit access to naloxone kits for the general public. As we heard, uh, Christina used a naloxone kit and did CPR to to reverse overdose for her son. And the consequence of not having that kid or not having naloxone is potentially death. So there certainly is consequences to using illegal drugs. Um, and those naloxone kits in Alberta, we have one of the biggest programs. It has likely saved thousands of people over since the program has been active. Mm -hmm. And it is so important that we continue to have those supports across the country. Um, I just want to say though that um, I can appreciate the appeal of um, forcing people to treatment or the idea that if we just helped people get there, that once they're there, they will, you know, um, have some time to decompress. They'll think about where they're at. They'll benefit from counseling and they'll be better off for it. But the reality is there are numerous jurisdictions across North America that use this approach and use courts to order people into treatment. And the evidence shows clearly that is not more effective than simply having high quality voluntary care. We heard from Christina, we heard um, from the lady in Northwest Territories, we have, do not have enough capacity in the system to support people. And if we're going to take millions of dollars and invest it in courts and invest it in police to go out and apprehend people into short-term or longer-term stays, up of, upwards of a year, according to our minister, which you heard earlier, that will be astronomically expensive. And there are just so many better things that we could be investing those funds in All that right. will have a huge turn on investment for us and will actually have some impact in reducing this crisis. Yeah, sorry to jump in. Uh, don't go away. We're going to talk to you in just a moment, uh, but we are about to take a break here on television. Also, in terms of uh, a glossary for people who don't follow this as closely as uh, some of our guests, naloxone is another name for Narcan, which is that uh, drug that uh, can be administered. And for those of you watching on CBC News Network, we'll see you. I'm speaking to you at a moment of Grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week. All right. Our program continues live here on CBC Radio. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. This is Cross Country Checkup. We have about 30 minutes left on our main topic, and I have uh, so many interesting callers. I'm looking at the computer here to get to on our question of drug toxicity in this country and how it has affected you or your family and what can be done to reduce the number of drug deaths. And also in 30 minutes time, we'll have our Ask Me Anything segment. That E. coli outbreak in Calgary has left over 300 people infected, many of them children. E. coli bacteria, major cause of food poisoning in the country, but there are others. And so our Ask Me Anything segment will look at what you can do to prevent food poisoning with those things that are under your control. So 
also how you handle food in your kitchen, in the kitchen sink. You can actually start calling us now with your Ask Me Anything calls, food safety in your kitchen. We'll have an expert here, and you can uh, call us right now, 1-888-416-8333. You can text us as well, the number there, 226-758-8924. So that text number again, because I don't often say it, 226-758-8924. All right, so before we get to the AMA, let's go back to... uh, our main topic today, and let's bring back Elaine Heschke, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Health Systems Innovation at the University of Alberta School of Public Health. Um, you know, I said this earlier, uh, Professor Heschke, so many threads here. Um, and so I'm just going to ask you generally, based on what you've heard in the first hour of the program, um, what else you'd like to comment on? I think it's really important that if we're going to effectively address this crisis that is really sweeping our country, we need to have a common evidence-based understanding of the root cause of the situation we're in. And so um, the minister was right to point out that uh, earlier, you know, in the 2000s, late 90s, uh, uh, peaking in about 2010, 11, 12, uh, we did have a problem with prescription opioids in circulation. And there were a lot of legitimate concerns about um large quantities of opioids being prescribed. And then what was happening was that it wasn't necessarily that there was a ton of people who were being prescribed opioids and then becoming addicted to them. Um, But what was actually happening was there was just a lot of opioids around because people had them in their medicine cabinets or whatever, and they were being diverted. And that was contributing to a problem. And there was um, concerted action at the time made to try to address it. And so what happened was governments across the country, including in Alberta, uh, took many steps to limit the diversion of prescription opioids. At the time, we had about 100 people a year dying in Alberta um, from drug poisoning deaths, which is obviously far too many. And I personally think we should have none um, or get as low to that number as possible. Now, though, what we've seen is when those well-intentioned efforts to crack down on the prescription opioid supply occurred, uh, there was a large unmet need for um, and demand in the population for those drugs. And so what we saw was first um, a short transition towards more like illegal drugs like heroin. And then very quickly, uh, the market changed fundamentally to supply novel synthetic opioids like fentanyl. And that's really where we started to see this massive escalation in death. And so now, for example, last year in Alberta, we had over 1,500 people die here. And um, the vast majority of those deaths like vast majority um, were related to fentanyl and other novel synthetic opioids. And so if we want to bring down the death rate um, substantially, we need to address that um, toxic drug supply. And so that's where we have proposals for A, expanding access to treatment. Um, opioid agonist medications are very good. Uh, suboxone, methadone, they can cut the risk of death by 50%. But we know that they don't work for everyone. And there is a growing number of people who are not responding very well to those treatments. So we also have injectable formulations like hydromorphone or even diacetylmorphine as they have in Vancouver. The evidence there is very clear that they're very effective, not only for promoting long-term recovery for people, but also for reducing their risk of death and engagement in potentially crime, property crime, and things like that. Um, So we need more of those. Um, But we also need to recognize that this is not just a crisis of addiction. This is a crisis of toxic drugs. And so we know from data in BC and other areas that um, a substantial proportion of people that die, um, potentially upwards of 30%, don't have a history of an opioid addiction or a drug use disorder. Um, and 
they need support too. And that's where the idea comes in of not just focusing on forcing everyone into one model of treatment or just providing treatment, but also taking a harm reduction approach. And so we've talked about supervised consumption sites. The evidence is quite clear that they do save lives. Um, Naloxone as well. Something that is now being tried, um, that is still being piloted across in five provinces, actually, um, not just in BC, is safe supply. And safe supply is really the idea that for people that continue to use opioids, it is safer for them to have access to predictable pharmaceutical-grade opioids, um, as opposed to having to rely on a highly toxic, highly contaminated street supply. And we're still waiting on um, strong evidence to come out of these pilot projects, but the emerging evidence, and there has been 20 studies published in at the last two years alone, is suggesting that they do have positive income or uh, positive outcomes for people that are enrolled in those programs. And so I do think they're worth trying as part of this emergency response. Professor Heshka, I, I have so many callers I want to get to. Um, let me ask you a couple of questions and, and maybe quick questions and answers. Uh, first of all, I can just imagine Mitch, the firefighter who called us from the city you're in, Edmonton, listening to what you just said and, and again, just throwing his hands up and saying, you want to give drugs to people who are addicted, that's just enabling them. Uh, short answer to him on that, if he were to ask that question. Yeah, I think the evidence is very clear that prescribing medications reduces people's risk of death. And so um, you can call keeping people alive enabling, but I call that survival and success. And not only do we need to reduce people's risk of death, but we need to connect them to meaningful and effective care. And that's where we talk about improving hospital care, improving counseling, improving access to income and housing. And when we can get those supports right, I think um, in combinations with medications, counseling, other approaches, people will do very well and recovery. The reality is we're not investing enough in those um, supports. And one more quick question and answer, and that is on uh, on on distributing those safe drugs. Uh, we heard this from the minister that we spoke to an hour ago, and we hear it from others as well. And that is this concern that those drugs will be diverted, that the person who gets them prescribed to him or her uh, will sell some of them or distribute some of them, and uh, and and. I mean, we heard from the minister that uh, leading to overdoses when other people take it. But let me simple sort of question. What about the risk of those drugs being diverted to people that aren't the intended recipient? It's absolutely a concern that should be monitored and is being monitored as part of those evaluations. The reality is, though, that there is a high demand for drugs and many people will continue to initiate drugs, whether we have safe supply programs or not. The difference is if someone's initiating on a pharmaceutical grade medication, which obviously we don't want to happen uh, at all. But if that's the case, uh, they have a much lower risk of dying from a drug poisoning than if they're initiating on something like fentanyl or um, benzodope or xylazine laced dope, which um, has very unpredictable potency and toxicity. And as we heard um, from the one caller, you know, that her son was like, couldn't support his respiratory pathway for almost a day because mm -hmm. of this toxic cocktail. So, um, I think it's something that needs to be monitored for and uh, steps put in place to prevent. But uh, if this is strategy can reduce death and save lives, we de it's definitely going to play a role, I think, or needs to play a role in the public health response. We really appreciate both your expertise and the time you're giving us. And uh, if you can stand by, I'm going to come back to you at least one more time before we uh, end our conversation on this topic. 
Elaine Heschke is an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in Health Systems Innovation at the University of Alberta's School of Public Health. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Cross Country Checkup is live. And our question this week, have you or your family been affected by the toxic drug crisis? What can we do to reduce the number of drug deaths in Canada? Moira Smith is calling us from Smith's Falls, Ontario. Hi, Moira. Hi there. I see in the notes here that that the toxic drug crisis has had an impact on your family, your daughter uh, in particular. Tell me about that. Absolutely. Um, She started injecting when she was about 16 years old. Uh, She had never smoked marijuana. I don't even think she smoked cigarettes, but somebody introduced it to her. And that just started a, oh my God, a nightmare for the next, let's say six years, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody had to uh, inject her with uh, Narcon four times. Um, she ended up in the Kingston Hospital uh, with necrolytic endocarditis, which means uh, the drug gets around the, the heart. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people uh, survive that. Uh, she got Hep C. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just kind of give, give, giving you guys the bare, yep. bare roots because there's just been a lot of uh, talk about how government should change this and government should change that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I know is that for my daughter to survive, I had to go down and take care of her myself. So... You know, there's services, and and you can go to counseling once a month. That that just doesn't do it. Addicts who are in a really bad way, what they need is love. Um, because one of the reasons they probably started in the first place is that they didn't feel like they fit, they didn't belong, or they weren't loved. So... Currently, my daughter has been, uh, I say, clean with a, a codicil there. Uh, she's still on methadone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I was uh, mentioned uh, to the producer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's harm reduction. And if, if she has to be on it the rest of her life, then you know what? I support that because she's a lot. And she almost died, I don't even know how many times. Mm. She's 29. She's doing well. Um, I think that uh, I don't know about the government side of things. Um, I think the doctors have overprescribed opiates in the past. Mm-hmm. And that has caused a lot of people um, to be very addicted more than they maybe would normally have been, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, I think it's up to family to support the addict. And not everybody can do that. Because government can do what they want, but you can't go to counseling once a month and everything's going to be tickety-boo. Mm-hmm. Like you need full-time support, full-time love, 
Does that make sense? It sure makes sense. I also, though, think about the people who aren't lucky enough to have you as a mother who maybe are estranged from their family. Maybe that's what led them down the path of addiction in, in the first place. And so where do they get the support that, that loving families can give? Well, uh, my daughter was estranged from me. Hmm. Um, I just made a decision that I was going to go and go to Kingston and try to help her. People without uh, without a, a parent that is going to help them, and I totally get it, and my heart breaks for them. But some of the government standards and some of the uh, uh, treatment centers and that they they're really pushing these addicts to get clean, and sometimes pushing them too hard is not healthy. But what about, what would you say to the people who advocate, and we've heard a little bit of it on the program so far today, you know, you mentioned your daughter almost died three times from from poisonings or overdoses. Um, what if one of those times, if someone had said, you know what, you are going into treatment right now, we're going to get you clean, and we're going to get you off that. What impact do you think it would have had on her? Oh, they did that a number of times. She's been in so many treatments. And? She's been in, uh, she went, anyways. So, but until an addict wants to change, uh, it's very difficult for somebody to want or to be able to help them. But she's been through treatments. And, uh, you know, I guess what finally woke her up is that this uh, uh, endocardosis mm-hmm. and hep C. But I think that uh, pushing people into treatment is not the best thing. And what's wrong with putting them on methadone for a while to help them get over it? These stories can't be easy to share publicly, Moira. And, uh, and, no. and, and I appreciate you giving us a call. It, it really is eye-opening. Thank you. Thanks. Our next guest sees the impact of the toxic drug crisis firsthand. Constable Paul Stamm is a community relations officer with the Ottawa Police Force. He's had other assignments with the police force before that, and he joins us now from Ottawa. Hi, Constable. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, for taking our call. Uh, paint us a picture of, of how you've seen this crisis uh, play out in, in Ottawa's downtown core over the last few years. Well, I think what we're seeing here is um, pretty typical of of what uh, cities across uh, right across Canada are seeing, uh, and that's a, a marked, uh, significant, and visible increase in um, you know in the unhoused population, in uh, street involved folks, in um, folks who are using drugs in public spaces, uh, mostly smoking and uh, injecting, um, and some of the other um, you know what we would call social disorder type of issues that go along uh, with that. So. Uh, an increase in mental health calls for service to the police, um, increase in folks suffering from and experiencing mental health crisis out on the in uh, you know in public spaces, um, and some of the the sort of low level nonviolent um, criminal offending that goes along with what we would call uh, social defor- social disorder offenses, so thefts and other property crimes uh, related to that. So you know trespassing, loitering, break and enters, uh, those types of things. 
I'm old enough and have been a reporter long enough to uh, have seen a real change in in police approaches to to drug use in cities. I've been out here in Vancouver for for more than 30 years and seen at a time police would uh, you know, arrest people for possession. Um, and then there was a stage where they would take away, not arrest, but take away drugs from people who were using and and uh, and grind uh, uh, crack pipes uh, so that they couldn't be used again. Um, now it's a very different approach. And uh, they, they kind of, uh, the, the officers treat it as, as a medical issue as opposed to a criminal issue. Um, what is the role for police forces, at least, well, your perspective in Ottawa, what is the role for the police in all of this? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I do want to be clear that uh, there absolutely is a, a significant uh, criminal element that is involved uh, in the situation to cont- contributing to the problem. Um, these are, you know, typically violent offenders. They're involved with um, uh, violent gangs that traffic in the toxic drug supply. Uh, they're involved in violent robberies, assaults, uh, sexual assaults. Um, and for these folks, uh, of course, the direct law enforcement uh, approach is most appropriate and it's the most effective. Um, but as police, you know, our, our mission is public safety. Uh, our, our primary function is providing uh, safe and secure communities uh, right across Ottawa. And um, to do that, of course, we do law enforcement, but we also use um, crime prevention, uh, risk intervention, and uh, community engagement uh, through social supports. And, um, you know, leaving that that real criminal, that violent criminal element aside, um, what we're focusing on now is more of this crime prevention and community engagement uh, through social supports approach, which, you know, we recognize that, um, a, it's a small percentage of, of folks who are sort of responsible for a disproportionately large amount of these social disorder issues. Um, and also, you know, more importantly, we recognize that a lot of um, when it comes to from a police perspective, these these uh, social disorder offending is, you know, they're actually, in fact, symptoms of these much more complex underlying um, sort of criminogenic risk factors. So folks who are committing property crimes such as theft or trespassing, break and enters, um, those are symptoms of these um, underlying factors, risk factors. So uh, mental health issues, obviously problematic substance use issues, um, folks who are unhoused and street involved, and uh, you know people who are identified as racialized or, or members of other vulnerable um, populations are more at risk uh, of this type of offending. So our focus is is for these type of issues, these social disorder issues, is to get away from direct law enforcement. Uh, we recognize that arresting and rearresting uh, these folks, putting them back through the cycle of criminalization, back through the criminal justice system, it's just not effective. Uh, we have very limited frontline resources. And when we dedicate um, all our resources to, to a direct law, uh, law enforcement approach, uh, to to solve that problem, we get chewed up pretty quick. So what we're looking for is is more effective and efficient uh, use of police resources and uh, and recognizing that fundamentally these are public health and social service issues. Um, and so we're looking for ways that we can really engage with and mobilize uh, our partners in those spaces so we can support them in their work. 
We're speaking live with Constable Paul Stam, who's a community relations officer with the Ottawa Police Force. And Constable Stam, if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, we might be talking about long-term solutions to try to reduce uh, addiction and try to help people who are addicts. But fentanyl has kind of changed the game. And so the focus in a lot of parts of the country is very immediate term, which is how do you keep people alive this afternoon? How do you keep people alive tomorrow, the next couple of days. So as a, a police officer has had various roles with the Ottawa police force, what would be your answer to that question if I were to say to you, what should be done to help those who are taking drugs in Ottawa just stay alive? Um, you know, we absolutely support uh, harm reduction. Uh, part of my role as a community officer is is working very closely with all of our harm reduction partners. So, whether it be um, inner city, Ottawa Inner City Health, uh, who you know provides outreach and um, targeted engagement and diversion, or Safer Supply, or um, providing you know Ottawa Public Health, who provides. Um, Safer supply equipment, or sorry, harm reduction equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, we we support harm reduction. It's an integral part of the solution. Um, but you know, the the national drug strategy going back almost twenty years now is it's a four pillar approach that originally came out of Vancouver uh, almost twenty years ago, and it's it's prevention, it's treatment, it's harm reduction, and it's enforcement. And you know, I might say public safety now instead of enforcement, but um, we really do need all four pillars functioning together. Um, and and collaborating together, you can't have silos. That's where we see things break down. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know that safer supply has has been somewhat controversial um, lately, and I think that what we what we really need to do is is when we speak about safer supply, is speak about it in principle, but also in practice. And in principle, um, of course, it's absolutely um, very effective in in keeping folks alive. And getting them off the toxic drug supply, and also from a policing perspective, when when folks are getting a clean and safe supply of of drugs, they're not committing these social disorder, property uh, crime type of offenses, which which chews up uh, frontline police resources so quickly. Mm-hmm. So, um, absolutely, it's part of the it's part of the solution, and uh, we work with those partners every single day uh, to support their work. Constable Stam, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Ian. It was a pleasure. Constable Paul Stam, Community Relations Officer with the Ottawa Police Force, and we reached him in Ottawa. Our AMA is coming up. I'm going to delay it a little bit, probably started in about uh, 15 minutes or uh, 10 to 15 minutes from now. Uh, the topic remains the same, though. Food safety in your kitchen, food poisoning caused by E. coli, salmonella, norovirus, some of it can be prevented by things you do in your own home. So you can call now with safety, food safety questions for our expert one 1- 888-416-8333 or text those questions to 226-758-8924. But back to our main topic, uh, have you or your family been affected by toxic drug crisis? What can we do to reduce the number of drug deaths in Canada? That is, of course, a key part of the conversation. And Dr. Dr. Sarah Davidson has called us from Fredericton, the medical director of the Riverstone Recovery Centre in that city. Dr. Davidson, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Ian. So um, as someone who has listened to the program and called into the program, what do you want our audience to hear? I'm very happy that you've had uh, Dr. Heshka leading a lot of the conversation. She actually alluded to five different uh, pilot studies that are being done. So I have the 
the uh, distinct pleasure of being the, one of the medical directors for one of those pilot projects here in Fredericton. So we run what's called an IOT program, injectable opiate agonist therapy. And essentially for people that have refractory IV drug use or intravenous drug use, they're, you know, they may have tried methadone or suboxone many, many, many times. And unfortunately now fentanyl, as you were hearing from all of the callers, is everywhere across the country. And so the risk for, for toxic drug poisoning is just so high that we're, we're providing a form where people can come in and we cater their doses to whatever their metabolic needs are. And then they're able to come to the clinic three times per day and they do an injection in a safe and clean space. And it is prescribed. And, and one of the really nice parts of that is as much as we need safe consumption sites, the thing with IOT that's quite nice is we're, we're helping to decriminalize people because they're, they're having it be covered as a medication just as any other blood pressure medication, diabetic medication would be covered. So they get a long-acting um, oral medication overnight to stay out of withdrawal. And we have roughly 75 people in our program right now in Fredericton. And it's, it's growing, and I guess I just wanted to contribute from that perspective of being one of the more medicalized, safer supply locations. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And Dr. Davidson, uh, and I have some other calls I want to get to, but let me ask you this. Um, you've heard, if you've been listening to the program, some of the frustration from some of the callers, a couple in particular, who see the impacts of uh, drug addiction uh, in their streets, on their streets, and and just feel like programs and maybe programs like yours they might describe as enabling those who are addicted to drugs. And so you hear that sense of frustration and we need to do something that's, you know, bolder and more effective. What would you say to them? I also feel a similar frustration with how much people are suffering. And I I guess on one hand, we can all aspire to a world where people aren't using drugs. It's just not realistic. Um, what my frustration would say is we actually need to get at the underlying reasons people are using drugs because not everyone has the goal of abstinence. Many people have tried multiple, multiple times. You know, people that are living outside, living in tents, living in, you know, bank machines here in Fredericton, and they're at risk of dying from fentanyl. I mean, just saying we're going to put you in a forced treatment for, you know, a few months and then kick you back out to the street is never, ever going to get them to where they are, but where they want to be. However, in our program, what we've seen is people can become stabilized. Um, They're not necessarily having the same kind of cravings. They're not having to be so afraid that they might die after the next injection. And once they have that time and they've got case managers and supports around them, we have, after people have been in the program for, because we're in our third year now, after two years, 80% when they started were unhoused, but 80% now are housed. And Hmm. it's not because we've got new housing. (laughs) I wish we had more. It's just because people's lives can get much more stable. So the idea of housing first, I'm sure you've heard by other people on the program in the past, is where we need to house people. Then we help them work on their worst demons they possibly have. And so for people that have really significant substance use disorder, just by saying we can't be enabling them is just going to basically be a death sentence for a lot of people. I can appreciate Mm -hmm. the, the wanting to say that. It just honestly doesn't bear out. And I know that we're so excited with seeing people become stable. And now we even have people that are employed within our clinic as cleaners and they're getting ready to start their own small businesses. Like there's so much potential in people, but the idea that they need to abstain from injecting drugs in order to get to some other place, is just not always realistic. So we yeah. have to prevent them from dying and then help them get to where they want to be. I'm so glad you called into the program, Dr. Davidson. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Before we go back to Professor Heshka, I think we have time for one more call. And then after Professor Heshka, we'll have the AMA on food safety. Let's go to uh, Chelsea Ann Bruton, who's in Powell River, British Columbia. Hi, Chelsea Ann. Hello. 
I, I see in the notes here that you describe yourself as, as a, a drug addict and, and want to talk about harm reduction. What would you like us to know? I, I think it's a, it's a good thing. Like it's, a, it's good in its idea. But the way it's being used is basically taking away all responsibility and accountability an addict needs to get better. Like, you know, even for our own lives, you know, we, we can go into these places and, and use and the, the, the risk of death isn't even there because it's like, oh, so bring me back. I, our our phone line, our phone line's not great, so hopefully our our listeners will oh, will bear fact, with no, us. It could be the wind. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so what that's do better. you what do you suggest should be done? I think more money, like the money that's going into the harm reduction, not not all of it, but you know, not so much money into harm reduction. More needs to go into long term recovery. Like you can go in and get, you know, a needle kit you know, lickety split. You can go in and get to a doctor and get Dilaudid prescribed within a week. I waited 10 and a half months to get into a treatment center. I've been, you know, sending in referrals for the last year and a half for a counselor at the at the mental health and addictions here in the Pearl River Hospital. I still haven't got a call back yet, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I can go get, you know, a pipe kit right away. I can go get Dilaudid, you know, I can go to the Welly and get a crisis grant, easy peasy, you know, but 10 and a half months for a treatment center. Yeah. Like, this is kind of stupid. It, it Harm reduction is supposed to be just harm reduction. It shouldn't be. It's, it's, it's enabling is what it is. It's gone past the point of helping to the point of, you you don't have to do anything with your life except just use and you know we'll take care of everything else for you. Okay. You have no responsibility, no accountability, and you'll never hit your bottom because harm reduction's here, and it's that's what's killing people. Okay, Chelsea Ann, thank you very much for calling us. Thank you very much. Chelsea Ann Bruton is in Powell River, British Columbia. Let's go back one last time to Elaine Heschke, an associate professor at the University of Alberta. Elaine, we, we, we or Professor Heschke, we're, we're, we've gone beyond uh, our usual time, but I, I do want to come back to you one last time. We have maybe about three or four minutes in total. Um, I, I do want you to comment on what we just heard from Chelsea Ann, who describes herself as an addict, and you heard. She says harm reduction is enabling, and, uh, and it allows you to not hit rock bottom. Bottom, um, and she had to wait, I think she said, 10 and a half months for uh, treatment. Uh, what would you say to her? I think um, I'm glad she raised these points. And, you know, everyone obviously is entitled to their different opinions about various interventions. Um, we know from evidence that it's very clear uh, supervised reception sites, providing sterile injection supplies, naloxone kits, all of those things are life-saving. They're keeping people alive. They're opening the door for whatever comes next for them, whether it be treatment if they need it or something else. So they are the backbone of the response and they're absolutely essential. I think part of the reason we see so much debate over, should it be residential treatment? Should it be forced treatment? Should it be harm reduction? Should we have safe supply? Is because we have such a scarcity of resources that have been invested in this crisis. So Prior to the pandemic, we know that drug poisoning deaths were actually contributing to stalling a 40-year trend of increasing life expectancy in Canada. So for 40 years, our life expectancy at birth was increasing, but the drug poisoning epidemic starting around 2015, 2016 was starting to reverse that trend. And in Alberta and BC, we've actually seen declines in life expectancy. 
that is shocking from a population health perspective, which is where I'm coming from. And it absolutely indicates that we need to be putting so much more resources into this crisis than we are at any provincial level or at any current federal level. And I think um, I just want to bring it back to the opening interview you had with Kyle. I thought he shared a lot of important wisdom. And one thing that he said was we need to be investing in everything that works and also taking the approach of, you know, understanding that people need multiple pathways. And for some people, it's harm reduction, safe supply. And for other people, they prefer just to try abstinence. We should be supporting people to be successful in whatever pathway is going to work best for them. And we can't do that without a more, a much better investment in this area. And I think one thing that kind of gives me hope um, when I think about it, even though obviously statistics are quite dire right now across the country, especially here in Alberta, um, is, you know, when we talk about housing and affordability, that is top of mind for many Canadians. Uh, and people feel like this is an intractable crisis. How can we address it? But we're starting to see people want to take a whole society approach and do many things to address affordability and housing. And that's what we need to do for drug poisoning. We need to have this be top of mind and we need to invest massively in this um, system of care for people. And uh, the reality is stigma, discrimination and things like that are holding us back and it's making it hard for governments to justify those investments. And so until we see Canadians and Albertans and everyone else demanding that the level of investment in this issue matches how many people are dying and how many people are suffering, I, I do worry that we won't see um, significant improvements in our statistics or the trajectory of this crisis. I think that's a good place to end this part of our conversation, which, of course, will continue in the future. But, Professor Heschke, thank you very much for giving us 90 minutes of your time on a Sunday afternoon. Thank you so much for this really important conversation. Aline Heschke, an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in Health Systems Innovation at the University of Alberta School of Public Health. It's time for Ask Me Anything, food safety in your kitchen. The number of E. coli cases connected to multiple daycares in Calgary has jumped again. Families are watching in anguish, watching their children suffer from a preventable cause. It's unimaginable pain, and I'm heartbroken by what these family families are going through. There are four things that people should remember. Cooking, cleaning, chilling, and separating. Those four steps are taken, the risk of foodborne illness will be substantially decreased. An E. coli outbreak affecting some daycares in Calgary has now hit more than 300 people. And more than 20 kids have been diagnosed with a severe kidney complication since that outbreak began. According to Alberta Health Services, it's believed this all started at a central kitchen shared by the daycares. We're still learning more about what exactly happened in Calgary, but we're going to shift the conversation here to something we can control, what's happening in our own kitchens and cooking habits. E. coli, salmonella, norovirus, these are some of the major sources of food poisoning in the country. So what can you do at home? Let's connect with Keith Warner. He's a professor at the uh, Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph. He started a food safety program at the university and has studied bacteria like E. coli and salmonella. And he is here live to take your calls and answer questions. You can ask Professor Warner anything about food safety. Give us a call at 1-888-416-8333 or you can text us at 226-758-8924. Professor Warner, thanks for joining us. 
Good afternoon, Ian. So a lot of people are thinking about uh, food safety, particularly in the last week and a half or so because of that outbreak in Calgary. We are still awaiting the sort of precise details of, of where that outbreak uh, may have begun. But, but take us through generally how E. coli gets into the food supply in the first place. Yeah, it's a very complicated system. Essentially, E. coli is adapted to cattle or other ruminants. You know, that's why sometimes we hear about E. coli outbreaks linked to farms and uh, these small farms. So what happens typically is it goes into cattle. The cattle don't feel anything. But what cattle do is produce manure. And so that manure can get onto the hide. So when it goes to be processed, so to speak, it gets onto the hide, gets into the ground meat. We have to cook ground meat thoroughly to get it inactivated. So that's one route. Now, another route is via lettuce and other leafy greens and vegetables. So what happens here, that manure that was actually on the, in the uh, cattle farm uh, leaches into the irrigation water such as in Salinas Valley, and then it gets onto the lettuce and then it goes, uh, obviously people try to wash lettuce, it doesn't do anything. It gets into uh, the consumers that way. And the third way, and this is more disturbing as we're seeing it, is what we call a secondary infection, i.e. somebody passing it on to another person via the faecal oral route, uh, route. Uh, let's talk about the second of those three things, because I think the first one, when it comes to beef, for example, people know or ought to know that they need to cook at least the outside of the beef, right? Or if it's uh, ground beef, they need to cook it uh, thoroughly and that will uh, kill the toxin. But let's talk about lettuce. Um, if the lettuce is contaminated, I think a lot of people feel like if you wash it properly, put it in the colander, let that water, you know, pour across it, that that will make it safe. Are you saying that isn't so? Oh, yeah, it's been known for many years. Uh, washing actually in an industrial scale causes more problems. So we try to prevent cross-contamination. And when people take it home, uh, people say, oh, well, soak it in the sink. That's the best thing. That's one of the most dangerous things you can do because you've got all that contamination around your sink unit. And even rinsing it um, doesn't do that much. And this is why our research, for example, we're developing much more effective technologies. Uh, you know, basically, it's called a hydroxy radical process to overcome these limitations. But just washing it doesn't cut it. Well, so, I mean, there are a lot of good public health, a lot of good health reasons to eat salads um, with, you know, fresh lettuce. Uh, so what do you suggest we as consumers do? Well, it's a hard decision. You're right. On one side, people saying eight vegetables or fruit and vegetables a day. On the other side, they're saying, well, no, uh, you've got to be careful. Well, Fortunately, you know, the Canadian government is helping us because what they do is demand testing from those high-risk areas, Salinas Valley in central California. Uh, so that's one thing. But what consumers can do is they can buy intact uh, produce like intact lettuce rather than bagged lettuce. Even though bagged lettuce and bagged uh, produce is convenient, that carries more risk because it's all cut off, it's put into these baths and it could cross-contaminate. But certainly... Don't be put off uh, by doing it, but anything whole fruit rather than the process cut is always a good thing. We're live here with Keith Warner, and uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to go to the phone lines to take your calls. It's our Ask Me Anything on food safety, and our number is one 
888-416-8333. Professor Warner, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. A lot of people are thinking about the turkey that they may be serving. And uh, conventional thinking in some households is if you have turkey or chicken, there are toxins uh, associated with poultry. And so they believe one of the things they need to do is put those, uh, put that in the sink and wash it before you cook it. You're the expert. What do you say to them on that score? Oh, yeah. Thanksgiving turkey is just a salt course of uh, food safety. Uh, Definitely defrosted, right? So it's a very classic argument. Uh, Do you wash your poultry before cooking Mm -hmm. or do you just leave it? And uh, I was surprisingly, I was in a food safety meeting last year full of food safety experts. And we did a poll of the audience, half washed it and half didn't. And obviously the, the safest thing to do is don't wash it. You're spreading contamination everywhere. You put lettuce down and things like that. But when you look at people who believe you wash it, you know, they say, well, our grandparents did it. And it's quite interesting, the food safety, what we call food safety culture, how people um, handle food. That it's, uh, you might have knowledge, but it, at the end of the day, it comes down from what you experienced when you were young. Uh, so it's interesting. But yeah, don't wash your turkey. I think that's the key point. You don't want salmonella on the countertop or anything like that. But cook it properly. Always cook it properly and defrost it properly. And that's another sort of uh, thing people get wrong. Some people say, let's put it outside uh, on the counter. <laughs> Definitely don't do that. Some people say, put it in the fridge. Uh, again, Better than the counter, but not ideal. The most ideal thing is actually in the sink, defrosting and wrapping with water because water conducts heat much more effectively. And you want it defrosted before you put it into the oven. And if you can resist the stuffing, uh, putting stuffing in uh, what to cook it in there, that's even better. Cook it at, uh, stuffing outside the turkey. But uh, certainly, and to cool down quickly, you know, don't leave it out there because in actual fact, we get quite a few outbreaks at Thanksgiving due to a pathogen called Clostridium perfringens that just loves it when it's between four and 63 degrees C. I'm trying to figure out if you're a great guest at a dinner party or the worst guest at a dinner party. But anyway, I'll let our listeners decide by the end of the well, ask. Okay. I don't get invited to many. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. You know, uh, if people have questions about uh, food-borne illnesses, this is the time to ask. And our number, of course, 1-888-416-8333. I have lots more questions, but let's go to the phone lines right now. John McCormick is here in Vancouver. Hi, John. Hi there. I'm good. What uh, would you like to ask or say to our expert guest? I, You know, I have a question, but, you know, there's a link to the last thing, and, and, and uh, I think you should know about it because you've been around a long time. I have been you around know, a long time. I remember Izzy Asper, mm-hmm. and Izzy Asper was the head of the media. And one of, these, one of these days I woke up and he said, business as, or the, the general public has to give up its rights and freedoms so that business can operate unobstruct, in an unobstructed way. Now, I couldn't believe I heard that. And then I also found out that there was a ministry of deregulation. And then one year, I actually heard that there were more deaths from, from um, bad, tainted meats coming out of an abattoir of a famous, very, I'm not even going to mention their name. Um, there were more deaths from that than flu that year. So when you have deregulation, when you have people having hands-off things so that no obstruction with business occurs, you have things coming into the country 
that are not viewed anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be done so that business can operate in an unobstructed way. And yeah. So, so John, John, let me let me let me just jump in and say a couple of things. So, Izzy Asper um, was, I believe, the owner of the fledgling uh, global. TV network, but certainly not kind of running media beyond that. I, I feel like that quote that you just mentioned might be out of context, because I, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know the, the, the context of it. Um, but more generally, your point about government regulation, I think we do see with food safety, the government oversight uh, from inspections to various rules that, that some level of government oversight is critical. So uh, that's, that's an interesting point. And, and John, I wonder if you have a question for our guest. How do you stop the, um, the supermarkets um, from being sort of laissez-faire about expired meat? Um, the expiry dates are on there, but the day that the expired, it's in the counter. Guy grabs one, takes it home, thinks that he just bought some sausages and it's still okay. He leaves it in his fridge for a day. It's another day expired. Mm-hmm. And he ends cooking that thinking it's fresh meat. And oh. a lot of people don't look at the expiry dates, but they should be removed from the from the counters, and the counter should be clean. Okay. If you look underneath, you see the blood underneath these counters that is dried and di- for there, people don't take the time to do things anymore, and that's okay. the point. All right, Th- thank you, thank you, John. Let me put the, a version of that question to Professor Warner, um, and and not going to ask you about supermarket policy in terms of what we can do to get them to change their their whatever their policies happen to be. But but to the point of your expertise. Um, when we see meat that's beyond its expiry date from the supermarket, uh, is that enough to tell us that there is, you know, sort of a danger there? Or how do we determine whether the meat we're buying from a supermarket is safe to eat? So like I say, I could have taken the government question as well, but I'll take this one. Okay, so, I'll, I'll put that to you as well. But let, let's, start oh, with the, let's start with expired meat from the supermarket. Will do. All right. So the first thing is there's no expiry dates on meat. There's best before dates. And so best before dates don't really have anything to do with safety, although they do in a way. They're saying this is the best quality the meat will be. After this date, the quality can't be guaranteed. And we did a program uh, with Marketplace many years ago now where they actually did find, um, should we say, supermarkets, which took the meat in and relabeled it. It's not the best thing to do, as in it's not the most ethical thing to do. But surprisingly, it's not against the law to do that. You know, basically, what the uh, trouble with meat and getting best before dates is trying to predict them right. So some meat will spoil much quicker than others and there's reasons for that which we won't go into so what um, supermarkets will do obviously they need to make a profit as very good at doing so um, they w- sometimes will change the date even though it's not ethical in actual fact there was a case in spain in canada just last week where a supermarket manager going to big trouble because he changed changing dates on everything so it's not so ethical but it's there again is to address the food waste problem, uh, which obviously people kind of look at before. But just to reaffirm, there's no expiry date on meat. It's only best before date. And typically, yeah, meat that goes uh, grey isn't dangerous, but there are kind of dangers to it 
uh, to do with biogenic amines. But like I said, I could go on about that for another half an hour. Well, well but let, let me ask this, though. I mean, so you, you get the meat from the supermarket, uh, you open it up, and is there any, any tip you have in terms of how we should determine whether, I, I don't know, a red flag should go up based on how the meat looks or, or smells? Yeah, so really it's the smell. It's the sulfur smell. Like meat in vacuum pack naturally goes grey and you say, oh, wow, you know, it must be bad. It's lost its redness. But you can smell it and it smells very putrid and uh, genetically we're programmed to know this meat isn't good. So usually it's the smell rather than the look. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do want to ask you that government uh, uh, regulation question, but I'll do it in a moment because we're starting to get lots of calls pouring in, as I expected. Uh, let's go to Jane Keeler, who's in Ottawa. Hi, Jane. Hi. Uh, I have a curious question. I'm kind of embarrassed to ask it, but I, I just looked it up, and yes, it still says this on the internet. Okay. It says that wood cutting boards have an antimicrobial property, and that makes them a better choice over plastics hmm. in some cases. I just wondered if you have any comments on that. Yeah, nothing to be embarrassed about with that question. Um, and, uh, and Professor Warner, what do you have to say about wood cutting boards? Well, this takes me back. I wrote an article uh, several years ago on this subject. So what it is, wood hasn't got natural antimicrobials. So what wood does is dry quickly. And you'll notice our plastic wooden boards, they kind of keep wet. And when to get microbes growing, what we have to do is make them wet, so to speak. Obviously, put food and temperature into it as well. So there's a big debate saying, well, wood obviously has cracks and crevices, um, but dries quickly. But the plastic um, has scratching crevices and keeps wet. So there is actually um, some sort of vote saying, yes, wooden cutting boards are good. But the trouble is, is that they're very hard to sanitize because of all those correct, those sort of nooks and crannies, whereas plastic are. So it's one or the other, but it's not a clear-cut thing. But I certainly would just go for plastic because of the ability to sanitize. And when you put that plastic cutting board in the dishwasher, um, you know, you're, does that make it sterile and safe? Well, it cleans it up. It doesn't make it sterile per se, but it certainly puts enough temperature in to inactivate micros where you would never put a wooden... Um, cutting board in there. And even if we get onto the glass cutting boards, which used to be popular a few years ago, they're definitely not a good thing to have. So so what should I do to to make, to to sterilize the plastic cutting board? Well, the thing is, you don't need it sterile. Uh, Basically, you just need it what we call disinfected. So what I generally do is I get a weak bleach solution, about a cap in uh, a gallon of water, you don't need a concentrated bleach. You could just soak it in there. Certainly, you put it into the dishwasher. Only special dishwashers get up to the, what I call the, towards the sterilization temperature. Normal dishwashers don't. But again, it's better than doing nothing. And as you're probably aware, you have different cutting boards for raw meat and uh, ready-to-eat things like lettuce. Uh, because cutting boards are that kind of uh, center where cross-contamination can occur. Do you? Do you have separate cutting boards? I have so much that I need to do to catch up to your advice here with uh, food safety. Let's go to our next caller. Ashley Jollimore is in Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia. Hi, Ashley. Hi there. Um, I just have a pretty basic question, I guess, about best before date. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if they apply after you've opened it. So particularly I'm thinking of like I have a container of hummus in my fridge and the expiry or best before date, I guess, is like a month out. 
but it's already been open for like a week and a half or two weeks. So is it still good after I've opened it for that, like until a month away or, or like, how do I know if it's still, if I can still use it? Yeah, that is a great question. Professor Warner. Very good question. So basically these best before dates that are kind of estimates for quality, they're given by, or they're designated by the manufacturer. And that's with all the things working. So basically they might have what we call hot filled uh, that hummus, which basically means once you open it, uh, obviously microbes can get in. So the best before date only rarely applies uh, when the, it's in its packaging rather than outside its packaging because we do special things to suppress microbes. But certain things uh, you have to watch out for. And I always say, I don't I never knew why they didn't put these in a list. You know, if you've got certain foods like deli meat, seafood, soft cheese, these are the things where you look at the best before dates and you say, yeah, that's this best before date. I'm not going to have it. Uh, and even pasteurized soups was a popular one. Uh, but most of the time, that best before date is for the benefit of the uh, retailer. You know, basically just to say it's got this amount of... Uh, retail days left on it and i could tell you about the history basically the the best before dates were bought in in 1950 by marks and spencers for a marketing tool to get people to buy but anyway <laughs> without digressing to answer your question again yes once the best be uh, open the best before date doesn't mean that much all right thanks for that question ashley let's go to michael longarini who's in clarington ontario hi michael hi there thank you yeah, my family, we use a lot of reusable water bottles for water, tea, coffee. Um, and some of them have very intricate lids with valves and locks and different tight O-ring seals that are really hard to take off. How careful do we have to be with trying to thoroughly clean all the hard-to-get places of these lids? And does it matter what you're using it for? Like, should we clean them more uh, if we're using it for coffee or juice compared to water? What do you think? Great question. Thank you, Michael. Professor Warner? Yeah, it's a very good question because when we look at our drinking water bottles, even the uh, recyclable ones and disposable, we think, oh, they're safe. But the trouble is you'll get like a slime layer called a biofilm in there, which normally is safe. But there again, it can, it can be pathogenic, you know, basically all these nasty germs. So essentially we have to kind of uh, look at them and sanitize them, rinse them out, uh, Again, those that you can put in the dishwasher, very good, because you do get a bit of temperature there to do it. But you've got to be very wary, especially uh, for young, old, and immunocompromised. When we do the, have these, I call them reusable containers, that they are sanitary, because, like I say, once you get biofilms in there, they're very hard to uh, remove and uh, sanitize. And to your question about, well, we've got these recyclable bottles. Yeah, they're fine for a part, but you would never use them too often because you can't dismantle them and obviously sanitize them. Hmm. All uh, right, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, we have uh, just a couple of minutes left in our Ask Me Anything. And uh, our next caller is here in Vancouver, Marshall Norgan. And you have a question that echoes a little bit of conversation we had at the beginning of the half hour, but I think it's worth, uh, it's worth uh, addressing again. Uh, Marshall, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, what's your question for Professor Warner? Well, I was wondering, um, with cleaning, like I buy a head of romaine lettuce, and what I do is I do rinse it in the sink. And apparently, from what I've heard this today, it's that I'm doing the wrong thing. So I'm wondering if I could 
fill the sink with some water, put the lettuce in it, break it up, put it in there, and then put uh, some bleach in it. And I know bleach is toxic to us, but I would then, wouldn't that kill the bacteria? And then I could empty the sink and then rewash the lettuce in, in, in clean water. Could I do that? Uh, well, you could do that, but it's dangerous. You know, it's quite interesting. During, uh, I'll say the pandemic, I've got to say which one, uh, you know, people are putting detergent bleach in. And the problem is, as you rightly said, bleach is toxic at very high levels. In industry, they basically use bleach to stop cross-contamination. You shouldn't use detergent. You, should use, you shouldn't use borax. The best way to clean the lettuce, because obviously you don't want the insects and the debris, is under running water. Anytime you have standing water, You've got to think of your sink as this sort of sponge in one corner full of germs, uh, maybe a cloth or a brush full of germs. So you try to avoid contact with the sink and uh, certainly avoid using chemicals. You can buy some formula, but they don't really do that much. I won't say which ones, but uh, people sometimes use vinegar. It doesn't really do anything. But running water is the best thing to do. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the call. We have one minute left, Professor Warner, and I just wonder if maybe you have a, a last thought for people to take away uh, about food safety. Well, I think food safety in the home, it is serious. And as we've seen in Calgary, it can be life devastating. So you go through the four rules, cook, chill, separate, and sanitize. And everyone should have a meat thermometer and use it because you'll be surprised how you know, meat promoters can save your life. So only 14% was used them in Canada, but uh, certainly if you want to buy a Christmas present even now, or Thanksgiving <laughs> present, uh, and, uh, even better, uh, you get a meat thermometer and keep sanitary, yeah. Uh, knowing everything you know about food safety and dangers, are you a nervous eater? Certainly eating out, I'm very, um, not nervous, but you know what to look for. Lukewarm, it doesn't look quite right. And you always say to people, if you're in doubt, don't eat it. You know, um, foodborne illness can be very devastating. It's not worth a risk. I know we're all guilty, aren't we, of heating that thing in the microwave till it's lukewarm and say, oh, I'm too rushed to get it. Yeah, try to avoid any sort of risk taking if you can. Well, if I'm ever in Guelph, I'd love to have a coffee with you, but I don't think I want to share a meal with you. I think that would make me nervous. But uh, yeah. Professor Warner, thank you very much. No, thank you, Ian. Keith Warner, Professor at the Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph. That's it for Check Up, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkups live broadcast on CBC Radio from September 17th, 2023. If you want to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Chuck Molga, Kiata Greco, and Celine Aaron. Our TV team, Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Ivana Stojanovic, and Sean Foss. Special thanks to the team at Alberta at Noon, Sarah O'Donnell and Mavonwi Davis. Technical production and editing from Emily Chiarvesio and Matthias Wolfson. Our program assistant is Mackenzie Ribello. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner and Steve Howard. Our digital producer is Paul Hanchiak. And the senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.